A witness in a courtroom swears to tell not just the truth, but the whole truth. In other parts of life, however, we get to be selective in the elements of a story that we share. When we look for dualities in the real world, we are faced with complex stories. But are there times when a simple narrative is better? I'm Izzy Amoruso. I'm Edward Sturm. And this is Duality. Every week we bring you two stories and a conversation about them. This week on Duality, in defense of a simple story. We take two controversial interpretations of two high-profile crimes to ask, what's the value of changing the narrative? In the aftermath of Brock Turner's rape of Stanford student Chanel Miller and Matthew Shepard's murder in Laramie, Wyoming, new perspectives complicate our perception. Examining every part of a situation has its value, but sometimes there's a reason to tell an incomplete story. So in 1998, Matthew Shepard was studying at the University of Wyoming. He was a 19-year-old student majoring in political science, and he was gay. On the night of October 6th, Matthew was approached by two men his age, uh, Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson, at a bar. He got in a car with them, and the men proceeded to rob and torture him, pistol-whipping him so hard uh, that they permanently damaged his brain. McKinney and Henderson would later testify that they became agitated when Matthew allegedly flirted with them. The two men drove Matthew to a remote location. They beat him and left him bleeding, tied to a fence. When he was found the next morning, he was unconscious, skin showing only in thin streaks on his face where tears had washed away the blood. By the time that Matthew died six days later, his story had galvanized the country. Candlelight vigils brought together thousands of mourners, but it also compelled a new kind of activism, and from a lot more people. What happened to Matthew Shepard was unbelievably tragic, but it was also really provocative, and it made people talk about not just hate crimes, but all kinds of prejudice against LGBTQ plus people in a different way. There are a couple of examples of this. You know, there's the Laramie Project, uh, which was my introduction to this case. Uh, it was a play written about the town's response to the murder, and it's still performed all across the country, very frequently produced by high school theater groups. And there are a lot of instances, you know, more so 10 years ago than now, but, but even still, of school administrators or parents fighting the show because of its themes. The Westboro Baptist Church, which um, in Topeka, not uh, not too far away from my hometown in Kansas. Oh, right. Yeah, is, uh, is known for their very provocative signs. They were at the funeral in 1998, holding signs saying Matthew in hell and other even more provocative phrases. They uh, were depicted in the Laramie Project and also uh, protest various productions of the Laramie Project from time to time. But there's no doubt that this that this production, the Laramie Project, and even the public reaction to it has sparked all kinds of conversations about LGBTQ plus issues. And now seeing Catholic or religious schools put on the Laramie Project is just a huge testament to how far we've come in the past decade. Matthew's parents were also thrust into this role of advocacy. The Matthew Shepard Foundation has championed hate crime legislation. Uh, in 1998, neither Wyoming nor U.S. federal statutes allowed the two men, McKinney or Henderson, to be charged with a hate crime, even though that was how it was characterized. 
no federal progress was really made on that, largely for political reasons until the beginning of the Obama administration. But in 2009, the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act was passed by both houses of Congress. And that's given the federal government a lot more jurisdiction on prosecuting and preventing hate crimes, and has been seen as a big win uh, for activists and uh, defenders of, of civil, civil liberties there. So uh, this is the simple story, and and it's the familiar one. There's no question that this story has done a lot of good. You know, Izzy, you shared uh, with me Kathy Renna's TED Talk on the subject called The Power of One Story, and I think that's really aptly named. Uh, She talks about the way that the massive media response to Matthew's murder has actually opened a lot of doors to reporting on other instances where LGBT people maybe... uh, maybe of color or less in a less privileged scenario were going to be reported on to a greater extent and violence against LGBTQ people would put be put more to the forefront. Exactly. And Kathy Renna actually came and spoke at my school about Matthew Shepard. Mm-hmm. And one thing she made sure to really emphasize and acknowledge was that there was a reason that his story was the one that got told on such a large scale. Yeah, I do think that that's interesting. And that is sort of where we we pivot to more confounding details on the story. She talked about how Matthew came off as, you know, the the boy next door. And his identity as white, educated, affluent, and, and palatable was a big part of the reason that that story rose to national prominence. And we have to acknowledge that privilege. Then came the book of Matt. Uh, which was written by Stephen Jimenez, and uh, the book focuses on the effect of methamphetamines and uh, addiction uh, in the town on, on the crime itself. There are a lot of questions about the quality of the evidence that was used, a lot of dispute on that front, but at least the way that the book frames it is that the murder might have been closer to a drug deal gone wrong than a hate crime, at least in the way it was originally characterized. McKinney and Henderson were apparently on a drug binge the entire week leading up to the murder. McKinney was allegedly trying to steal $10,000 of meth on the night of October 6th, perhaps perhaps even from Matthew Shepard. Um, in interviews, McKinney now acknowledges that his story about being provoked to kill Matthew because uh, Matthew made a pass at him was sort of intended to be a defense in court, and he claims that their interaction actually had much more to do with drugs. There are reports that McKinney and and Matthew Shepard knew each other. Um, They might have even had a sexual relationship, questionable, but uh, suggested in the book. Um, Matthew himself was involved to some extent in the sale of meth and seemingly addicted as well. Uh, McKinney and Henderson also got into a brutal fight with two other men that night, um, and, and that aggressive behavior is certainly consistent with coming down from a prolonged high on methamphetamines. So... That narrative does change the story a little bit, and it, to some extent, obscures this clear idea, this clear picture we have of who Matthew Shepard was and what that crime entailed. There are a lot of things that I respect about Jimenez's intentions. You know, in some ways, it's kind of what we're trying to do with this podcast, to take a more nuanced look at things that seem cut and dry. He writes at the beginning of the book, something that I find really interesting. He says, A morally simple world of blacks and whites is at best ephemeral. Together we have enshrined Matthew's tragedy as a passion play and folktale, but hardly ever for the truth of what it was or who he was, much to our own diminishment. I find that quote very compelling, actually, because 
it seems that we struggle to see Matthew Shepard as a victim and also be able to acknowledge that he was potentially involved with drugs. Those ideas are somehow incongruous. We can't acknowledge that people can be victims and also have flaws, which is something we've talked about in previous episodes of Duality. You're right. I agree with him that moral absolutism is is troubling, and we've talked about that in previous episodes as well. But here's the thing. At the end of the statement, I do have some doubts. So that's the question we're asking. Is it much to our diminishment that the story told about Matthew Shepard is straightforward? You know, Matthew has become a symbol of activism and the crime gripped people who never otherwise would have understood the extent of violence against LGBTQ people. I don't think that would have happened, like you said, if at the time the story was breaking, people could sort of shift it to be about drugs and not about hate. The main issue here is that Matthew Shepard was murdered. When you bring in other variables, it seems to cloud or detract from the issue at hand. And that's also the case in the story that I'm going to describe for you today. On January 18th, 2015, two bikers stopped outside a frat house when they saw two bodies on the ground, one unmoving. They had just witnessed Brock Turner, a 19-year-old student at Stanford, sexually assaulting another student while she was unconscious outside the Kappa Alpha house. When Turner was approached by the two bikers, he ran. On February 2nd, Turner was indicted on two counts of rape, two for felony sexual assault, and one for attempted rape. He pled not guilty to all charges. On March 30th, the jury found him guilty for three counts of sexual assault, and he was sentenced to six months in county jail with three months probation, a sentence that was largely perceived by the public as lenient. Turner's father later wrote in a letter that his son would never have the life he had worked so hard for, and that this was a steep price for 20 minutes of action. Yikes. Yeah, yikes is right. The weekend after it was written, this letter was read by the public over 5 million times, and the case sparked nationwide discussions about how sexual assault cases are handled by the American justice system. During the trial, the brave young woman who came forward against her abuser was only identified by the alias Emily Doe. Her witness impact statement received national media attention, and I'm going to read a part of her statement for you now. You said, I want to show people that one night of drinking can ruin a life. A life. One life. Yours. You forgot about mine. Let me rephrase for you. I want to show people that one night of drinking can ruin two lives. You and me. You are the cause, I am the effect. You have dragged me through this hell with you, dipped me back into that night again and again. You knocked down both our towers. I collapsed at the same time you did. If you think I was spared, came out unscathed, that today I ride off into the sunset while you suffer the greatest blow, you are mistaken. Nobody wins. We have all been devastated. We have all been trying to find some meaning in all this suffering. Your damage was concrete, stripped of titles, degrees, enrollment. My damage was internal, unseen. I carry it with me. You took away my worth, my privacy, my energy, my time, my safety, my intimacy, my confidence, my own voice, until today. Uh, That's a really powerful statement. I think her writing is absolutely inspirational. This statement was first published in 2016 by BuzzFeed, and very soon after it went viral. 
In September of 2019, she released her memoir titled Know My Name, in which she revealed her name to be Chanel Miller. The case itself is pretty conclusive, but it's not without nuance. This prompted writer Malcolm Gladwell to further examine its circumstances in his latest non-fiction bestseller, Talking to Strangers. At the time of the assault, Miller's blood alcohol content was 0.249, which is three times the legal limit, and Turner's was 0.171, which is twice the legal limit. These numbers were based on expert witness testimony. Malcolm uses the case to illustrate how the already tenuous understanding of what consent actually looks like becomes even more unclear when alcohol comes into play. He explains how around a certain blood alcohol level, the hippocampus, which is the part of the brain responsible for memory, shuts down. The difference between Miller and Turner's respective blood alcohol levels doesn't necessarily mean that one would appear more drunk than the other, but she was blackout drunk, meaning she wouldn't remember the details of the assault, while Brock was not. Gladwell contends that in the hypersexualized setting of a frat party, excessive drinking is a recipe for disaster. The essence of his point is that if we want to stop future sexual assaults and similar scenarios, the conversation needs to include alcohol. There's no denying that alcohol is an essential element in what happened that night, but I don't think that it should be the narrative that we walk away with. At the end of the day, there were other 19-year-olds who were drunk in the same hyper-sexualized setting that did not rape an unconscious woman. The central issue here is behavior. Gladwell was widely criticized for this chapter of his book, with journalists stating he oversimplified the issue and asked readers to see Turner as if he were at the mercy of his environment instead of truly responsible for his actions. That's interesting. It makes me think of uh, Kathy Renna's TED Talk, and she talks about that that gay panic defense, that idea that I killed him because he came on to me is similar to the whole, I raped her because she was wearing a short skirt, or, or maybe even because we were both drunk. That's an interesting connection, Edward. Both of these details are important and should be acknowledged, but they do run the risk of coming across as victim-blaming. As you talked about the central narrative coming out of this case in the media, social media all over the place was no means no, rape is not okay, that this was this was really awful. If Malcolm Gladwell's analysis were to be the central narrative, what do you think that would mean for women like Chanel Miller? The issue with bringing up these confounding variables, specifically in Gladwell's case, the alcohol, is that it tends to cloud the fact that as I said before, the central issue is behavior. Alcohol is a factor that came into play, but the more it's emphasized, it seems to almost reduce Turner's culpability for what he did. It's true that alcohol could have impaired his judgment to a degree, but as I stated before, there were other students in the same circumstances who did not commit sexual assault. So it feels like by emphasizing the role that alcohol played, he seems to be shifting some of the responsibility for the crime. You're right. It's a really difficult thing to walk about, to, to, a difficult line to walk, because Gladwell's intention is not to take away or obscure the culpability of Brock Turner. But that is, as, as you talked about, the effect. I, I wish that there was a way for us to hear these complicated elements and not associate them with the culpability of the victim. And Edward, I, I think there is a way. Spending hours the way we have, which 
is not a realistic expectation for most people to engage in for every case they come across in the media, but taking time to synthesize complicated information while still acknowledging the central issue being the crime itself. And also, in this case, respecting the added emotionality of a crime like sexual assault or a hate crime. When you take an approach that's academic, it's really hard to not come off cold when you're dealing with emotional issues. When I read the chapter of Gladwell's book, I had a very emotional response, and I I was actually confused as to what I was responding to. I I got to the end of the chapter where he takes it upon himself to respond to Chanel Miller's witness statement and, and take issue with it. It felt really insensitive. It felt like he was invalidating her feelings or experience somehow. There are elements of his argument that I agree with, and I can acknowledge that they have value, but in my head I wanted him to be more emotionally sensitive, and without constantly acknowledging that the central issue was still rape and not the alcohol, it seemed almost to excuse what Brock did, which, after reading it again, I don't think was his intention, but it read that way to me at first. Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult dilemma because, obviously, we people don't spend hours analyzing these. I mean, we, we could on this one issue, but we can't spend hours trying to synthesize all of the complex details and in all of the things that we ever learn about. And so what we, what we do learn are simple narratives. And it serves a function, even if it does obscure relevant truths. Part of what we might also need to discuss here is the value of these added pieces. The details about the impact of meth on Matthew Shepard's case do tell a more complete story, and and they do avoid this world of moral absolutes. You know, last week we discussed the problems with heroification, that when we view historical figures or celebrities as flawless and ignore their faults, or when we see them as only their mistakes, we really end up hurting ourselves. So in that sense, I do place respect on the work that Jimenez and Gladwell did, even if it was tactless. I agree with that. Because of where we are right now, I question if expecting the media to include those complex layers is realistic. We can see that there are parts to both of these stories that were not highlighted by the media, and there are definitely reasons for that. The impact of these stories would be different. There is a way to balance these ideas, but it would rely on the general public growing to be able to navigate culpability and examine the complexity of these issues. Right now, on a societal level, including these variables would not allow us to see these issues as black and white, which is how we tend to see things, especially with larger-scale crimes. But you're absolutely right, Edward. The question at the heart of this duality is, how do we balance complex and simple narratives? You're absolutely right, and I hope that we can find that they coexist by respecting the practical aims of a simple narrative, but also acknowledging the important work that a, a complex narrative brings. There, we, we might point to reasons why the work of Jimenez and Gladwell were tactless or, or even problematic, but if we don't do that work at all, then we are in a sorry place, and we, we certainly don't have this podcast. Um, one 
distinguishing factor could be, and as, as we try to, to try to balance these things, is the response to some of these criticisms and and brought out details. And to some extent, there is this hierarchy of what we're going to talk about. And it does further victimize Matthew Shepard or Chanel Miller by portraying their actions as pu- questionable publicly. You know, they didn't choose to be public figures. Th- these aren't presidents or celebrities that we're criticizing. These are people who had terrible and tragic things happen to them. James Marsden, who is the uh, chairman of the Matthew Shepard Foundation, you know, says that they refuse to be intimidated by those who seek to tarnish Matthew Shepard's story. And he points to the fault, the attempts to rewrite the story with untrustworthy sources and factual errors, etc. Um, and I do feel like we need to give some weight to the representatives or even the people themselves who are further victimized by these conversations, even if there is some validity to the conversations themselves. I think that speaks to understanding the emotionality of these crimes. Chanel Miller said in an interview with The Guardian, quote, We say alcohol is the cause, but to me it's such a small way of thinking. Alcohol could never be the root of something that is part of such a greater pattern. When you look at the thousands of cases of violence against women, the common thread is not that we are drinking too much. She goes on to express how Gladwell was rationalizing and minimizing the effects of violence and regarding her as a case study rather than as a human being. And her perspective is invaluable in this situation because she was the victim of this crime and she's the one who's going to suffer from Gladwell's insensitivity much more so than the readers. You're right. I hope that this conversation, as, you know, nebulous and as as, uh, meandering as as it is, leads us to the understanding that there is a place for simple narratives. And although we um, like to try to uh, construct the, the value of these added details and these, these com- complexities, you know, that, that's what the premise of our conversations so far have been about. Stepping back and appreciating the reason that simple narratives exist and saying that it's okay to challenge those, but doing so in a way that is tactful and is not going to further victimize people in the in the the kind of scenarios that we've brought up today is really important. Next week, we'll discuss community. The stories of hysteria, illness in Belgium, and the bystander effect in New York couldn't be more different. What can they teach us? Thank you for listening to Duality. If you liked what you heard, subscribe now on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts.